Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. The Military Maxims of Napoleon. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. Today we're going to be talking about a few more military maxims that were written down by Napoleon. But before we get into that, well, first off, I want to say that I think tentatively that spring might actually be returning to Montana. I know in previous episodes I'd talked about Chinooks or false springs when Montana pulls the old, you know, tricksaroo on people, especially folks from not around here who may not be accustomed to uh, our state's propensity for tomfoolery (laughs) when it comes to the season change, particularly from winter to spring and summer. In the fall, it's pretty easy. We just kind of go summer, 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 winter most years. But, uh, But this year, yeah, we're starting to get some spring. The snow is receding. The birds are returning. It's looking like we might be able to be outside before too terribly long, which is so long awaited. Like, I am so thankful to Turtle and to the other folks who have made the university happen so that we do have indoor practices while we're waiting for, um, for, the, for the ground to thaw. But, of course, it's way better to be outside. For instance, I don't like using my bow inside because it's really easy to snap arrows. Somebody steps on it, boom, it's snapped. Whereas outside, there's a bit more give, right? There's a bit more cushion with the ground, and so it's it's harder to break arrows out there, and they're going to roll differently in that, and on all that, too. So I'm looking forward to being outside, to starting the new season. Um, I'm going to Chaos Wars. I don't know if any of y'all are planning on Chaos Wars, but that's a wonderful event that's held here in the Northwest in Idaho, and it's a Lake, Lake Walcott again. And, I mean, it's just a wonderful event. My very first event... Uh, kind of a, a yearly pilgrimage if I can make it. The only reason I'm able to this year, though, because, again, Lake Walcott has been... Uh, I, I'm kind of allergic to the mosquitoes there is what I've determined. I've got a cabin this time, and I am going to be going with prepped garb. You are not going to be able to see me. I am going to be a ghost in the night and covered from head to toe in linen. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. Actually being able to be there, enjoy my people, enjoy my friends, and also not have to eat handfuls of Benadryl at a time. But, Warhammer 40k players, I think you know what's coming next. I think you know what I need to talk about next, because if this is the first place that you're hearing it, well, either you're living under a rock, or you trust me very much to give you the proper news. Either way, this is is important. It's important for all of us. First things first, we've got the 10th edition coming up that was recently announced at uh, Adepticon. 
and it's exciting. You know, it's looking like it's going to be really streamlined. It's taking that myriad of co complexity out of 40K. It's not making it super simple, mind you. It's still going to be a, a heady game. But what it will do is take away the need for a law degree in order to prove anything that you're doing. You know, this arcane knowledge of, okay, with this rule here and this rule here and then this rule here, I can make an army that is unbeatable just from this, like, niche pairing of things that kind of breaks the game and defeats the purpose of really playing. So it's nice. I think it's really nice that they're able to kind of put out this new information and make sure that people are enjoying themselves. Also, I know that they're wanting more and more to do larger competitions. And for competitions to be fair, they need to be fair, right? And so when you've got these massive prizes going out, people, people, you know, their livelihood can be on the line here. So I think that a good portion of this is also to encourage the wargaming community in more participation. Not just at a local level, but also in like a tournament level, because now people can feel comfortable doing so. They're not going to be like, well, you know, I haven't studied my rules for 10,000 years. I'm not quite Nick Nolte level. You know, I honestly, between you and me, don't pay a huge amount of attention to the tournament circuit at this point, considering that I wasn't going to go in and fight it. Toto would be the one to have on the show to talk about that. He's, he is the metaist of the meta guys, but, uh. But yeah, I, I'm assuming he's still out there making waves. And yeah, not you won't have to be that level of good in order to go and have fun, which is nice. Now, the next thing I want to talk about, and this is something very near and dear to my heart, it's as exciting as it is for 10th edition to be coming out. I think we all know who I'm more excited about. I'm a Dark Angel player, by the way. I play Dark Angels in 40K. My unit is called the Dark Angels in Belagarth. Don't ask. I like a theme. But for those of you paying attention, and I know you all are, you know who's coming back. The man. The bearded dude. The one from Caliban. The lion. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Daddy's home. And we're ready. We are so ready for this. I have been waiting <laughs> my Warhammer career to be able to play on the tabletop with this monstrosity. And he's going to be a combat variant Primark. And it is so exciting. And I appreciate you indulging me in that small musical interlude and the, the philosophical musings of Gustav Holtz. Thank you so much, sir. But yes, I don't know if you could tell by the one use of music that I've ever done in this show from outside of it. But I'm very excited. I'm very, very excited for this. And so I'm waiting to see his rules. I'm waiting to see how he plays on the tabletop. Of course, I'm ready to mix him in with my first company and just go devastate. I got that box set. So I've got the new Azrael and the Vashtor and all that sort of thing. So it's good. It's looking good over here. I play Chaos Marines and I play, you know, Dark Angels. So that box was outstanding for me. Amazing value. I'm not being paid by Games Workshop to say that either. Like, this is just me individually enjoying the product. Whew. Okay. Well, now that that excitement's over with, what do you say we get into our next set of military maxims from Napoleon? Following up on where we last, uh, thank you again for indulging me there. I am so excited, just so excited, but let's get serious. Oh, bring it in. Super serial. We left off last time with number 22. 
So I think it only is logical that we begin again at 23. Napoleon says, When you occupy a position which the enemy threatens to surround, you should collect your forces quickly and menace him with an offensive movement. By this maneuver, you prevent him from detaching a part of his troops and annoying your flanks, in case you deem a retreat indispensable. I mean, this one's really straightforward, and it makes a lot of sense. It's not a matter of passively letting our opponents surround us, because that's giving control of the field to the enemy. And that's never a good idea, because then our enemy is free to do whatever they want to do, to maneuver in whatever way they want to maneuver. And in this particular case, with us being threatened to be surrounded, well, that's, that's like military 101. We don't want to be surrounded. But we also know that retreating from a situation like this is bad. Like, we're going to lose as many, if not more, troops trying to retreat from a situation like this. As, as it is, as a blank, you know, the enemy starting to surround us, pulling back, they can harry our flanks, they can make it so that we can't recover if they are enterprising enough and they understand the methods of pursuit that we had covered, uh, particularly when we were talking about it with Clausewitz. But this is a great idea, which is to say that when they begin to move towards us, you menace, you know, come at them real quick. And that means that they are less likely to make that detachment, to be like, okay, we're, we're going to send these guys way over here, because suddenly there's a threat. A threat that if they split their army, they may not be able to deal with. And so this gives us a chance to get out of there, if we need to. You know, if we need to. We can also use this to turn a flank. We can also use this to, to set the field in our own advantage. But if we do need to retreat, this gives us the ability to do so. It's basically, it's basically making your opponent wince. You know, throw, throwing a shot in such a way that they wince, they kind of close their eyes, they draw back, and then we're able to do what we need to do with that sudden offensive action. And there doesn't even need to be teeth to it. It doesn't even need to be something that we're planning on following through with. It can literally just be a display that we are doing for the benefit of intimidating our enemy. So that's a good idea. Make sure that we take that one to heart because, again, this is, I mean, this is key to Napoleon's style of just pure aggression. It doesn't matter, even if you're on the defensive. Aggression, aggression, aggression. And we are at war, after all, right? We are battling. That's kind of what we're mimicking with our intellectual and physical wargaming. And so to do so, we want to pull out all the stops and use what we, can, what we need to use. And a feint, in this particular way, is a fantastic way uh, for us to, again, get control of the battlefield, gain control over our opponent again, and uh, put them on the back foot, hopefully. Okay. Number 24. A military maxim, which ought never to be neglected, is to assemble your cantonments at the point which is most remote and best sheltered from the enemy, especially when he makes his appearance unexpectedly. You will then have time to unite the whole army before he can attack you. I mean, this makes sense. We want to make sure that you know, our, our rear area, our cantonment, kind of that, that main base of operations, is far away. So that when we need to, we're able to deploy our troops where they need to be quickly. If it's in a place that is vulnerable, as it were, the enemy might be able to spring an attack there, which means that our reserve troops, our, our garrison troops, are then bogged down while the other, while our other army tries to come to us. The maneuvering army needs to come to us. It's far easier to push troops up toward that maneuvering army than it is to shift that maneuver, maneuvering army on its own to another place. And that's something he's talking about here. You know, just making sure that our rear guard, that our... And again, this isn't so important for stuff like, 
you know, 40k or Belagarth, but if we're dealing with things like Civilization or Stellaris, we want to make sure that this, this base of operations, this point of power, is in a protected area, because it allows us to react rather than you know, try to fumble over ourselves and make the best of a situation. We can actually bring our full forces to bear, which is always superior. Number 25. When two armies are in order of battle, and one, if obliged to retire, must effect its retreat by a bridge, while the other can withdraw toward all points of the compass, the latter has greatly the advantage. A general so situated should be enterprising, strike vigorously, and maneuver against the flanks of his adversary, and victory is his. So this, of course, is kind of going, the very first parts, you know, the first basically 20 of these maxims, he's been like, don't, do not retreat, do not retreat, don't do it, don't retreat. But here he's kind of reversing himself and saying, okay, well, if we do need to retreat, because it, it's, it's stupid to say there is no retreat and have that be a point blank policy, because there are obviously going to be situations in which we need to retreat, in which we need to be able to fall back and reassess. You know, we don't just want to throw an entire army away. I've done that before. I've been playing Age of Empires again because they came out on console. Oh my goodness, I remember why as a middle schooler an entire night would disappear. Because you're like, I'm just going to sit down and play one game. Four hours later, uh-oh. You know, so <laughs> it's fun. But there's, it's really easy to get overextended. It's really easy to commit more troops than you mean to because the numbers go quickly. Like after a certain point, after a point of no return there is no way to really withstand the damage in an effective way. And it's different. Like a large number of troops losing bodies is different than a small number of troops because with a large number of troops, you can still hit back. There's still plenty of force to hit back with and potentially, you know, affect one of the things that he's talking about. The smaller that our troop numbers get, however, the, the less ability we have in that particular regard. But specifically here, we're talking about the manner in which a retreat can be effected. And using the bridge analogy, he really just means a narrow line of retreat. That can be a mountain pass, that can be just trying to go straight back away from something. But being able to go to all points on the compass, being able to strike out as we're retreating, well, this kind of relates back to that 23rd principle, a 23rd maxim, right? Where it's a matter of aggressing at our opponent and then being able to move out under a position of... of you know, greater security, it's kind of the same thing here. If we can maneuver our against a, an opponent's flank while withdrawing, that gives us way better options than trying to move straight back. Because when we move straight back, remember when we were talking about Clausewitz, there are several different types of pursuit. And one of the big ones was being able to anticipate where our any, many, enemy is going to be and intercept them there. Well, this, this is what makes it easy. If we're retreating along a single line backwards, our opponent knows exactly where we're going and they can intercept us or, or kind of harry us in that particular way, even potentially cut us off. A wider field, a wider area to be able to maneuver in, it's more difficult to be cut off when you've got, you know, again, all points of the compass to, to move towards. Your, your opponent doesn't necessarily know where we're going to go, but if we're doing a single line of retreat, that can be an issue and for the exact reasons that we were just talking about. All right, 26. It is a violation of correct principles to cause corps to act separately without communication with each other in the face of a concentrated enemy with easy communications. Interior lines. 
cooperation. They make a huge difference. The cooperation is huge. You can, you can tell the difference on a national field between a team that has somebody competent shouting and people listening to them and just a rabble. Because a rabble is uncoordinated. You know, certain people are going to push forward. Certain people are going to not push forward. Uh, the, the individual quote-unquote commanders, you know, if we're dealing with core, right? Some of them might be more aggressive. Some of them might be more defensive just by their own natural inclination. Uh, the Seven Days Battle during the American Civil War was a really good uh, example of this in, in terms of different corps not being as coordinated, <laughs> coordinated, I see what I did there, as they should have been. And they, they were not able to mount a defense. This is the Confederates, by the way. Not able to mount a defense because of this lack of coordination. And it's kind of the same here. If we're dealing with an opponent who has their poop in a group, as it were, and is able to communicate clearly between all the various elements, that coordination makes a difference. Like even a smaller force, better coordinated, can, can fare way better against a larger force that is not well coordinated. And so making sure that we keep our elements close enough to cooperate, but also make sure that we're communicating. And that's, that's the, the point of somebody big and back. In the Urukai, we had Forkbeard for the longest time. When I was a part of it, you know, he was, he was the big bellowing dude on the field. Everybody could hear him. And if you couldn't, the orders were, were shouted down the line. And this meant that this large and otherwise cumbersome force was able to react and move in ways that it would not have been able to had it not had that strong leading voice. And like I, I've been in teams before too. Uh, Dark Angels, you know, we usually are not the largest uh, unit on the field by any means. But we have good coordination and good communication between us. And so we're able to maneuver against much larger enemies with ease because now, of course, if they're coordinated and stuff too, numbers do make it make a huge <laughs> difference as we've talked about, but they're not the end all. Coordination and communication are massive. And so the, the army that has it has that and also has the, gosh, it's another C word. We talk about it all the time. Continuity, continuity, that, that <laughs> closeness to one another. So yeah, that's that's very important. It's it's good to remember to keep it together and and make sure that every all parts of the army, all parts of our force are operating at peak efficiency with one another. Twenty-seven. When you are driven from your first position, the rallying point of your columns should be so far in the rear that the enemy cannot get there before them. It would be the greatest of disasters to have your columns attacked by one before the reunion. It's kind of the same idea with the cantonments. We're saying, okay, the point of retreat is all the way back there. It's not a matter of just kind of getting back to this one shallow point that the enemy can far more easily get to because they can see it. You know, if we've got you know, a base of operations or a garrison set up close to the front lines and our enemy has done their reconnaissance, they can say, hey, that might be where they're going. Let's cut them off before they get there. Whereas if we're further back behind our lines, well, the fog of war comes into play. And our opponent knows less and less and less about our disposition the further back we go behind our lines. In most cases. In most cases. Modern warfare has given us, you know, satellite warfare has given us drones, which have massively changed the battlefield in this way. But for our purposes, and for the type of warfare that Napoleon and Frederick would have been talking about, you know, that, that distance is huge. 
And it means that you've got a different choices to be able to get there. If you've got that one shallow fallback point that's nearer to the enemy lines, there are not that many ways to get there. You know, that, that line is pretty straight. But as we're moving further and further back, well, we can curve that line more and more without sacrificing too much speed uh, or, or, you know, time of getting there. And so making sure that that rally point is decently far behind so that that recovery can happen and we can get back on our feet. It's not a matter of falling back shortly, kind of piecing together a rabble and then striking back out. That's not effective. That's a great way to be losing more troops. If we are going to withdraw, it needs to be far enough back that we can reevaluate, get our things together, make sure that everybody's communicating, everybody's organized, and then strike forth again. So, yes, making sure that we are falling far enough back. And this, this seems somewhat counterintuitive. You would think the closer it would be, the easier it would be, but it's also not safe because our opponent has a way easier time getting there before we do. 28. No detachment should be made the day preceding a battle, for during the night the state of things may change, either by a retreat of the enemy or by the arrival of strong reinforcements, which would put him in condition to assume the offensive and render the premature dispositions which you have made ruinous. Planning too far ahead leaves us with little room to adjust. I've seen this happen many, many times, especially with newer players who, you know, they're just starting to get into strategy. They're just starting to get into tactics. They want to do the huddle and they're like, okay, what exactly do we want to do? Let's plan out what we're going to do piece by piece, moment by moment. And anybody who's experienced says, okay, well, we can set up where we need to set up. You know, we can look at their kind of disposition and say, okay, we could put more strong people on this side, maybe, you know, a, a, you know, a less strong kind of retreating side over here or an even kind of distribution to match what they're doing, you know, whatever the case may be. That early setup is essential. You know, much like anybody who plays 40K will tell you, a lot of the game goes into the setup. The games are won and lost in setup. And so that does matter. But after that point, as we've discussed many, 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 many times before, and it has been said many, many, many different ways, but no plan survives the first encounter with the enemy. None. And so trying to plan every little thing out and then try to follow through on that when circumstances change. You know, what if our op opponent does reposition and their, and their forces move from one side to the other? What if they do receive reinforcements? What if they do better in one particular area of the battle than we were anticipating? Well, there's no way to adjust. We have a rigid plan at that point. And Napoleon tells us, keep it loose. Keep it loose. We don't know. We don't know if they're going to retreat and suddenly the, the position is going to look far different. We don't know if they're suddenly going to be reinforced. But either way, looking at the situation when it occurs, as it is occurring, is far better in terms of information and reaction than it is to really, really, really plan ahead. But this also means we need to be quick on our feet and we need to have that, have that very effective communication that we had talked about before. That's pivotal to be able to react in this way because it's easy to sit down you know, a day in advance with everybody and be like, okay, this is what we're going to do. Far harder to react to it in the moment, but that is what we're called to do. And this is something that, that, of course, Kudel comes into play. Those of us who have been doing this for a while, those of us who have been either playing 40K or a similar game or doing Belagarth, we kind of get an innate feeling of the changing of the field and where and what we should be doing 
at the time where we should be doing. That doesn't make any sense. Where we should be and what we should be doing at any given time. And this is harder to learn for a newer person. It, it can be very hard to teach in a lot of ways because we're not in a classroom setting. And most people do not want to be. One of the problems that I feel like I have when I go to an event to give a lecture, because I haven't actually been able to do it yet. Um, there's always been something ruinous that happened. But I am always slightly worried because a lot of these folks are, you know, they're fighters. They're not studiers. They're not scholars. And I don't mean that in a negative sort of way. It's just not their approach. A lot of people don't necessarily approach war games in the in the same way that I do. And a lot of people don't want to necessarily sit in a classroom when they might be able to be out there fighting. Now, who knows? I have no idea who would have showed up at Battle for the Ring if there hadn't been so much rain that it drove people inside. And I wanted, I, I instead, you know, I canceled my lecture because I was like, okay, there's a whole room full of people here who did not necessarily know what was going to be happening. And I do not want to tell you know, 50, 75 nerds to hush while I give them a lecture. That seems like, you know, insult to injury if somebody is not, uh, <laughs> is not into it. So, uh, but yeah, this is, it's a different approach. Uh, and, and regardless, making sure that we know what's going on in the moment, that's, that's what we come back to is making sure that we don't plan too far ahead and don't get too married to the plan far ahead because we know that things will change. Because our opponent is not a static force. They are also a thinking, moving, competing machine. Because, yeah, otherwise it's not a battle, it's a massacre. 29. When you have it in contemplation to give battle, it is a general rule to collect all your strength and to leave none unemployed. One battalion sometimes decides the issue of the day. Bring all of our strength to bear. Clausewitz says the same thing. You know, there's no use in having wasted things. Reserves are not wasted. Remember that that is there for a particular use. We have that, that particular force set aside to fill in gaps, to go for flanks, to protect against flanking maneuvers, and to protect our rear guard. It has a lot of different functions. So a rear guard, our reserves, are not what he's talking about here. We're talking about units that may be just kind of hanging out somewhere else on the field and not necessarily employed at the time. People just kind of standing off to the side. And of, of course, I've seen this as well. You know, I've seen it in, in something like Bell, where somebody finishes with their movement on their side or and, and suddenly just stands there looking around. It's like, we need to be moving. We need to be repositioning as quickly as possible to bring that strength to bear against the other side. Ambling around is, is not the way. And the same thing with something like 40K. If we're leaving units unengaged, now, a rear guard is different. Again, like when I put my cultists in the rear in order to hold that area and make sure that I still have, a, I'm not getting, you know, hit in the back, that's reserves. That's me using reserves. But if I've got things that are out there that are just kind of not being engaged, especially if I'm doing word bearers, where weight of bodies can really matter, well, he's absolutely right. Numbers matter. Forces that are coming to bear matter. We don't know what kind of hit our opponent is going to throw at us, regardless of our reconnaissance, regardless of our knowledge of their disposition. We just don't know sometimes. And so making sure that we are using the full force, our full capability, every single time is important. Now, of course, that full force is going to change. Sometimes we're going to be working with a combat patrol. Sometimes we're going to be working with an entire army. We never know. 
But either way, making sure that that army's power is not being wasted, that that economy of force is being put to use, very important. 30. Nothing is more rash or more opposed to the principles of war than a flank march in the presence of an army in position, especially when that army occupies heights at the foot of which you must defile. A flanking maneuver against somebody who is expecting it, especially an obvious one, is easy for them to counter. They just reposition. A flanking maneuver by its, by its very nature needs to be unexpected. It needs to be something that is not anticipated or that is happening so fast while your opponent is engaged elsewhere that it cannot necessarily be resisted in its own right. But if we already have our opponent who is in position, especially if they're occupying heights, they can just switch. They can just watch us and say, oh, they're going for a flank, a flank march. And this is different than engaging and, and like having part of your flank moving up. This is a matter of repositioning entirely and saying, okay, this is my face. This is my opponent's face. I'm now going to move all the way over here and hit them. They can react. They have time to react. If they don't, they're stupid. So we want to make sure that we're, we're, operating at an intelligent level here and that we're not just saying, oh, well, because I flank, I automatically win. No, I, it needs to be part of an art. It's part of an overall symphony. It's not just the one action. And so when we mess up like this, again, against a, an opponent that's in position and can react, it puts us in a really bad spot, a, a spot that is easily countered. 31. When you intend to engage in a decisive battle, avail yourself of all chances of success more especially if you have to do with a great captain. For if you are beaten, though you may be in midst of your magazines and near your fortified posts, woe to the vanquished. Bringing all of our forces to bear. Making sure, again, that we are giving us all chances of success. Okay, well, we've got this, uh, you know, gambit to use. Use it. We've got this tactic that we know works. Use it. We've got this special unit that has been just wrecking on the board or on the field, use them. Use it to our full advantage, especially if we know that our opponent is capable. That economy of force changes, of course. We don't want to overextend ourselves against an opponent that we know that we are superior to. And even that is a, is a vain statement to make because we should never underestimate our enemies. But if we know that our opponent is extremely good at what they do. We need to be putting everything we can into them every time. Toto is a great example. He has become very good with his Grey Knights, and he is my most frequent opponent at this point. And I need to be on my toes around him. He, know, he knows his rules well enough, and he knows his army well enough at this point that if I'm not paying attention, if I'm not bringing all of my forces to bear and using all of my knowledge of the way he plays and the way that the army works to combat him, I am in serious trouble. Because not only is he playing a decent army, but he's also a good commander in his own right. So that's, that's one of the things that Napoleon is saying here. He's like, if, if you've got a good commander that you're against, woe to you. You know, you, you may be back amongst your magazines and your fortified posts, which is to say that, like, you know, we're near an easy defensive position that we can fall back to. But if our opponent's a great captain, they know how to do pursuit. They know how to harry us. You know, even if we're reinforced in the rear like that, it doesn't matter if we didn't bring all that to bear. Like I had said before, with the Age of Empires, it is easy to just sort of send smaller forces. Because, let's say that we have 50 troops 
okay? If we send them five at a time against our opponent, they're going to be wiped out far easier than if we send all 50 at once. Same number, same number of troops coming in, but that weight means something. That power, that those numbers all at one time, that concentration means something. And so if I'm trying to beat somebody in Age of Empires, that, that trickle of soldiers coming in after a certain point might work. But if I'm really trying to break defenses, if I'm trying to bring all of my force to bear against a guy or gal or, or whoever I'm going up against there, power, power is necessary. 32. The duty of an advanced guard does not consist in advancing or retreating, but in maneuvering. It should be composed of light cavalry supported by a reserve of heavy and by battalions of infantry with artillery to support them. The advance guard should be formed of choice troops and the generals, officers, and soldiers, according to the requirements of their respective rank, should be thoroughly acquainted with the peculiar tactics necessary in this kind of service. An untrained company would be only a source of embarrassment. The advance guard's purpose is not just to run into our opponent and die. That's not it. That's why it's, it's light cavalry, like he said here, that's being done. The advance guard is there to poke at the enemy, to kind of move, to look, to evaluate the positions while the main force is coming up. Because again, the advance guard isn't just up there unsupported. They're not up there and the army is way in the back being like, we'll catch up in a minute. No, it's fairly close by. But again, that advance guard is there as not, not, just a, not just as that probing element, but also as a screen for the rest of the army. And so this, this is a light touch instrument. The advance guard are not there to win the game. They are not there to be delivering that decisive beginning stroke. As we've talked about before, there is very few foolishnesses greater than charging an unbroken enemy, just charging straight into them without having softened them up first. And so to try to put this advance guard just straight into them, a prepared force, well, that's silly. That's a, that's a great way to be just throwing away our army, throwing away our troops at a, in a useless endeavor. So the use of an advance guard is extremely tactful, is extremely artful. It's not the same bludgeoning instrument that we do with the force coming behind with like the infantry and the artillery, just ba-bam! The advance guard's job is different. And I've seen them be used in Belagarth to, to great effectiveness. I've got a friend named Angus, and he is often the advance guard. He moves in up front, gets in people's faces just outside of engagement range, and he's sitting there hollering at them, he's sitting there talking to them, kind of moving, kind of probing. He's very quick. And that distraction, that pressure, even just that little pressure in various places, changes the nature of the battlefield and changes the nature of the way that the combat will take place. Hardened troops may be able to resist this, knowing that the numbers are not there, the strength is not necessarily there to overwhelm the fo their force entirely. But even they have a hard time in reacting necessarily to that, to that probing light element. And so, yeah, the advance guard is not there to, you know, charge in because, like we said before, that's a great way to diminish our strength before we're even actually able to do anything with it. And and so putting inexperienced people in this position, people who may be just inclined to charge in or who don't know the rules of maneuver, well, you're asking for failure. We're asking for embarrassment. We're asking to just throw troops away into the maw of the enemy, which 
No bueno. I'm shaking my head right now. No bueno. 33. It is contrary to the usages of war to cause your parks or heavy artillery to enter a defile, like a deep valley or a canyon, the opposite extremity of which is not in your possession, since in the event of a retreat they will embarrass you and be lost. They ought to be left in position under suitable escort until you have made yourself master of the termination of the defile. Artillery are also notoriously difficult to maneuver. It's probably the most cumbersome portion of any army because it is not there to be a light maneuver element. It is there to kind of dig in its tracks and engage from a distance. Now, again, these, these roles are getting blurred. You know, the rules of war are being changed in the, modern, in the modern age with our new technologies. And so a lot of the stuff that we're reading about here doesn't quite apply anymore. But the principles are still very good. And in this particular case, before we move our big, slow, powerful stuff through a very vulnerable area, we need to make sure that we have both sides of that area under our control because not only does that it take a while for it to get there and back again, it's going to slow everything else up. You know, if we're moving our artillery through as just part of the kind of the rear of an overall motion and we don't control the other side, well, if we're engaged and we need to fall back, not only is the artillery going to be within capturing range, but it will also delay the rest of the army because of its sheer position, because of, of where everything is happening, it, it becomes not just cumbersome unto itself, but to the overall force. And so in looking to, you know, to make sure that we aren't shooting ourselves in the foot, we want to make sure that that artillery can move unencumbered, un, unharassed through this kind of vulnerable area, because artillery doesn't do well shooting up. It's kind of made to shoot down. Gravity also works that way more effectively. You know, that 9.8 meters per second squared kind of kind of makes a difference. So making sure that we're mathematically doing this right. Because, again, it, it's way easier to just leave it where it was and be like, oh, okay, we're being pushed back. Now we're in a good position to threaten this area rather than be the ones who are being threatened. 34. It should be adopted as a principle never to allow intervals through which the enemy can penetrate between the different corps forming the line of battle, unless you have laid a snare into which it is your object to draw him. Kind of what we've been talking about from before. Continuity between our units, making sure that we can't be divided, making sure that we can't be singled out, that our two doesn't become one-one against our opponents, two. That being said... If we're trying to lure them in, if there is some sort of gambit that we are running, that we, we are in control of, that's the difference. Control in this particular case. If we are dividing our core and we have control and we have communication between them and it is some sort of, again, a trick that we're trying to play, that is a different thing than just allowing our core to become disjointed and disordered, uh, to be too far away from each other, to be out of communication reins, to be sloppy. What we're talking about here requires firm mastery of our troops to make sure of that. Because if we're able to be divided, that full force cannot be brought to bear. That, that full might of our army is cut off from one another. And now we're fighting a defensive war. We're trying to reunite our sides rather than interrupt what our opponent is doing. And that's, you know, that does make a difference. It, it really does. All right. 
Let's do number 35, and I think that's where we're going to stop for today. 35. The camps of the same army should always be so placed as to be able to sustain each other. Be in in friend zone, you know? Not, so not, we're not just talking... Okay, I'm just going to... For a second. We are not talking about necessarily just being able to support one another militarily. You know, if one is attacked and another is not, you know, obviously that's important. Being able to call troops from one area to another to defend our supply line, to defend our line of communications is important. I'm not trying to diminish that. But one of the big things that I think he's talking about here and that needs to be said is also the amount of resource sharing. You know, different camps are going to have different requirements, are going to have different draws on their resources. And so this idea that the camps should be close enough together to support each other, again, not just militarily, but let's say Camp A is closer to the front lines. And Camp A is having its resources drawn on more because of this. Well, if, if we got Camp B close enough that Camp A can reach out and say, hey, we're running low on food. We're running low on ammo. We're running low on horses or, or, you know, whatever is going on. Well, Camp B can then easily send that up because they're right there. They're within kind of that effective range to be able to do so. And so whether this is, you know, being within a day's march or, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be for our individual circumstances, for our needs within either war or war gaming, the point of the matter is these camps are way more effective if they can cooperate again with each other. Kind of like Kind of like making sure that our core can't be divided. Making sure that our camps are close enough that they can also be a united front in of themselves is important. And it can be tedious. I get it. I get it. You know, I'm, when I'm playing Civ, one of the last things on my mind is to set up, you know, fortresses as I'm moving through areas. I just want to go, right? just want to ride that momentum. But we have to practice discipline. And we have to think to ourselves, okay, well, what if this doesn't work out? What if this push that I'm doing doesn't work or that it needs more. Maybe I didn't take enough. Maybe, you know, what I thought I needed, what I thought would be necessary, I wasn't able to bring up. Well, again, we can send our word, hey, Camp A, we need this. But if Camp A doesn't need it and Camp B is too far away, well, then we're kind of out of luck in a big way. But if Camp B is close enough and can kind of uh, resupply Camp A so that they can support, uh, you know, support the entire army. Well, there you go. There you go. So I think the lesson of today, based on the, the maxims that we were reading, is keep your poop in a group. Make sure that our various commanders, make sure that our various units can and will support one another. That we are using these coordinated ideas, even for retreats, should they be necessary. And of course, the idea that we need to be punching back at all times, that aggression, that warrior's soul needs to be present. Because if it is not, our opponent can easily take advantage of us. And that, my friends, leads to ruin. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, 
word balloons, fried squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earvrm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark signing off. Mm-hmm.